It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 9th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As you've been hearing, no doubt, this morning, the surname, the initial, the rank or grade, the location, and the Department of All Current PSNI Officers was published in error yesterday. The PSNI says this happened accidentally, a human error that was made responding to a Freedom of Information request. The PSNI Assistant Chief Constable Chris Todd apologised to the force yesterday. This is unacceptable. Um, In terms of the security for individuals, there's nothing at the moment to suggest that there's any immediate security concerns, but we have put actions in place to ensure that if anything does arise, we will be aware of that and then we can mitigate accordingly. Now, this data was published online and it stayed there yesterday for some three hours. I understand that that will be of considerable concern to many of my colleagues and their families indeed at the moment. We operate in an environment at the moment where there's a a severe threat to our colleagues from Northern Ireland related terrorism and this is the last thing that anybody in the organisation wants to be hearing this evening. As you'd expect, the matter is now under investigation. I owe it to all of my colleagues to make sure that this is investigated thoroughly and we've initiated that. We'll keep the police board informed, we'll keep all the staff associations informed of that investigation. The PSNI Assistant Chief Constable Chris Todd there. Peter McVerry from our sister station U105 is on the line with us and good morning to you Peter. Thanks for joining us. This was a mistake, it's believed, but by God it really was an unmerciful cock-up, wasn't it? Oh absolutely, yeah. People are talking about catastrophic and monumental. You know, the the PSNI's 22 years in existence post the Good Friday Agreement and definitely that's the, the, the biggest administrative mistake that's been made in, in its history. And even to call it an administrative mistake, Michael, um, plays it down because the reality is, uh, given the situation that we still live in in Northern Ireland and given the very recent attempt on the life of a serving police officer back in, in, in February, you know, th- it is possible that some of these details that they got into the wrong hands could put the lives of people in jeopardy. And uh, the status is one of severe threat to more than 10,000 individuals who had personal data published. Uh, Their home addresses weren't published, though. 
Uh, no, no, there weren't. It seems that what happened is there's a, there's a website that specialises in freedom of information and it allows members of the public, uh, quite rightly and quite legally, uh, to, to, to make requests for information from various police services and public authorities right across the UK. This website had asked the police service and all and for details on the many offices they had and what rank they, they had and what their rules were, uh, which is perfectly acceptable and that data was prepared. But what happened, Michael, it seems that the source data for that, so that the, the, the initial, the Christian names, the station, uh, the, the area of expertise and responsibility of the officers and the civilian staff involved had, was then included in a, in a, a back-end tab, if you like, that, um, that led to the data that was um, allowed and, and clear to be published, but someone sent the source data as well. So essentially, this website received two a spreadsheet with two tabs on it, one with information that should have been published and should have been sent, and one with information that never should have been sent. But there are questions being asked internally as well in the police to say, actually, this file, you know, it should exist, but it shouldn't exist in unencrypted form. And how is it possible for what's been termed a relatively junior member of staff to do the initial work, but then given the protocols and given the seriousness of the information, it's likely that would have gone through or should have gone through more than one set of hands and then more than one set of eyes to check it off. Mm. There will be questions after with the, the procedures and the and the policies, and we do have an emergency meeting that's been called of the policing board for Northern Ireland, which will now happen tomorrow morning. And I would expect that the PSNI, following the, the clips and information you've played there already from SEC uh, Todd last night, you would expect the police service in Northern Ireland to dig to get as much information as they can in the next 24 hours, so they can answer the questions that will be put to them tomorrow. By the public representatives at the policing board, mm, but the information was taken down from the internet uh, after some three hours. Uh, of course, uh, that doesn't mean that it, it's gone. I'm sure plenty of people have that data now in front of them and have managed to make copies of it. Yeah, lots of reports yesterday evening and last night of of the data being you know downloaded or screenshotted and of people exchanging it not for negative purposes but, but but simply you know passing it on and showing what had happened on on social media apps like WhatsApp. So there's so things like this can take on a life of their of their own. You'll have heard um, SEC Todd was appealing for anyone who had had sight of the information immediately delete it and, and not pass it on. The reality is when something like this gets into the public domain, there will be some people who, who choose to, to try to retain it, not for negative purposes, but there are some people who, should it come into their hands, it would be um, very useful for them in, in terms of identifying potential targets. And you'll remember, uh, the, the, as you say, the level of threat now to, to Northern mm. Ireland is that severe, and that was raised to severe after February of this year, uh, whenever there was a murder attempt on the life of Detective Chief Inspector John Caldwell in Oma, uh, one weekday evening after he finished uh, a football training session with his young son. So the, the threat level has been increased since then, and um, this will, will add to that further fear just about what might happen should this information get into the, the, the wrong hands. Mm. You know, there are police officers... Michael, who, you know, community police officers who do, do travel and work and walk around areas whose names are known, but there are other officers who are involved uh, more in intelligence or more in back office operations. And, you know, their, their neighbours probably don't know that they're police officers. They're probably the age-old thing in Northern Ireland was you were a civil servant, mm. you know, and you never told anybody that you worked for the REC or in the other times the PSNI. You know, some of those people now will have data released that shows they are members of the PSNI and members of departments that, that um, would like to keep some element of an anonymity, which is mm. now um, 
gone should this um, fall into should it should fall into the wrong hands. But the anonymity is gone now anyway because yep. it's been publicly available online, as you say, for for close to three hours yesterday. I can't tell you how incredible that sounds uh, to my ears, south of uh, the border, Peter. Uh, and I, I did read about that this morning, and that there's many Catholic officers in particular who who don't want family, friends, or uh, colleagues. Uh, to know uh, that they are actually PSNI officers uh, it, I suppose it, in many ways it, it uh, talks to how fragile the peace uh, and how new the peace process is in this country and indeed uh, a part of that is uh, the collapse of politics in the north for that matter and we continue to be in this vacuum. Uh, the Taoiseach is heading to Belfast uh, this morning uh, and he's hoping to convince politicians from all of the political parties to get the political institutions back up and running. He is, yeah. He's got a series of meetings with the majority of the parties here later today. You, you probably will have seen um, Michael that he's been over the last 24 hours a little bit critical of the stance of the British government and believing that things haven't moved as fast as they might because we've been without a serving assembly here in Northern Ireland since February of last year and the assembly election in May of last year. Uh, we, we've had no no assembly, no executive since February of last year and no serving assembly since May of last year. And the Taoiseach wrote an article yesterday in the Financial Times when he said that London and Dublin should, should work together hand in glove was his phrase. But another phrase that he used, he said there'd been some reluctance to do that from London. I think he is very clearly saying that responsibility for moves, moving this on and restoring Stormont lies with um, with both governments and he's very keen to see the British government, which at the start of this, if you remember, had been a bit of turmoil because you were going from, from Boris Johnson to Liz Truss uh, to, to Rishi Sunak. Um, but now, you know, Sunak's in there. At, uh, Chris Heaton-Harris is there as Secretary of State. Things should be a little more stable within the British government and the Taoiseach saying he would hope to see things moving on. The fear on the unionist side is that too much close cooperation leads to you know, joint authority or what unionists might see of too much interference or too, too much responsibility for Northern Ireland. With, with Dublin, something that nationalists obviously would be more keen on if we can't see a re-establishment of Drummond. So that's the, the, the difficult territory, if you like, the Taoiseach is treading when he comes here because he'll see Sinn Féin, he'll see the SDLP and they'll welcome with open arms any involvement from Dublin. He'll meet the, the DUP and the Ulster Unionists and especially... Uh, from those sides, he'd be met with great resistance for any more um, involvement from Dublin. So that will mm. be the difficulty that he's trying to, to to look over the next few days. We are trying to to get a timeline, if you like, for the potential return of Stormont. One of those he'll meet, Michael, is the DUP leader, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson. Sir Geoffrey, not, not the weekend past, the weekend before, yeah. had a letter... Um, which he wrote to party members, criticising um, some unionists, including members of his own party, for media leaks um, and for holding things back. Um, this is the first time that Jeffrey Donaldson has made a public appearance. Since that, there are some tensions within the DUP. Uh, it's thought that Sir Jeffrey and some of his closest lieutenants would like to return to Stormont, but some of the more senior or um, conservative members of the party want to hold out. Or something. So as well as the the, the Taoiseach and how that meeting goes, the media will be very interested to see 
whether Sir Geoffrey Donaldson speaks to the press on the way in or on the way out and what he says about the DUP position, regardless of what his, be- his belief is on what the Dublin involvement should be. OK, and how long might they hold out for? Because in that interview with, uh, or that article in the Financial Times, uh, the Taoiseach said there's an opportunity now. If you don't grasp that opportunity, everybody's going to be talking about the Westminster elections uh, before you know it, and it may not be until after that before we can get things going again. Yes, and the longer it goes on, the further away it seems to be, Michael, because we, we had thought at one point that it might get back up and running by May then when we ended up going into to recess. September was talked about. The difficulty now um, with that is that we take a very quick turnaround from people like the DUP to get it up and running. The um, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Chris Heaton-Harris, has an investment conference um, which is happening, and it's happening on the 12th and 13th of September in Belfast. And Ulster Unionist leader Doug Beatty had encouraged him last week to postpone that to allow them to get Stormont potentially back up and running. The Ulster Unionists don't see it happening by the 12th or 13th of September. It's understood that Joe Kennedy III, who's President Biden's specially appointed economic envoy for Northern Ireland, is also planning a trade mission to Northern Ireland in October. There have been some speculation that both of those economic events might be combined so that Northern Ireland could be shown off at its best with a functioning working government, but you know, I wouldn't like to. I wouldn't like to bet your money on it, Michael. Never mind my own. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'm glad to hear that. By the way, um, uh, if uh, the Taoiseach is right in suggesting that the British government is not working hand in glove with the Irish government to apply pressure and support to the political parties in Northern Ireland to restore the political institutions, what is the British government doing? Uh, is it working on its own, uh, trying to convince, uh, I suppose, the DUP in particular to? Ret- turn to politics. Yeah, there was a bit of to and for one about three or four weeks ago, and the, the Chris Eden Harris was actually said that said that actually he wasn't totally sure what it was that the DUP wanted. The DUP had said actually it was very clear what they were after, and they've historically outlined their their seven tests. But it does seem that a document in the last month or maybe six weeks went to the British government. And Chris Eaton Harris was quoted last week at an event when asked how they were doing, was saying that actually they were maybe halfway there. Um, the big thing, and you'll remember it, any time that we've had a political problem and Stormont has collapsed and we've had long-running negotiations, one of the things that gets everybody back round the table in the door, Michael, is money. Um, and it is thought that there's a, the discussions going on between the, the DUP and London, um, also involved in probably Dublin a little bit and the United States with the possibility of investment for Northern Ireland to push it forward. And there may well be a sum at some point that entices people back in the door because it's, when they come back in the door at the minute with no money, they're just going to be dealing with cost of living problems. They're going to be dealing with issues that at this moment in time rest primarily with um, London and which local politicians won't be too keen to look at. Things like water charges, for example, are being talked about coming in here. And historically, one of the things local politicians have done has been keen enough to sit outside and allow the British government to push something like that through Westminster so that they can lay the blame at the, the, the feet of um, UK politicians rather than say it was a decision they, they took they took locally. So interesting to see where we get to in the next uh, num- number of weeks on that, Michael. And mm. the money will um, obviously be a be a, a an influencer if you like to try to get them there. But you're right, we're starting to move into Sinn Féin's Ardèche, I think is happening, and I think it's an afternoon in November. It'll be interesting to see what their position is because Sinn Féin's eye is on being in power on both sides of the border. At the same time, they'll be keen to A, get Stormont back up and 
running and B, keen to clarify when the date might be for a general election south of the border and whether or not they would be able to get to a position where they could either form a government by themselves or enter into the coalition that's potentially being talked about. So, yeah. you know, there are considerations there um, in terms of not just the DEP but also Sinn Féin wanting to get this thing back up and running again because it would be a major political coup for them to be party in power on both sides of the border mm-hmm. in 2024 or 2025 depending on when those votes might take place Indeed, yeah, it certainly would be historic Peter, thank you indeed uh, for joining us Thanks for taking the call, good to talk to you Peter McVerry of our sister station U105 Now if you'd like uh, to comment on the programme today, our telephone number is 0419832000 You can text or WhatsApp a comment to 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Some 7,352 stray dogs went to the pound last year. It's an increase of 95% and indeed many people are surrendering their dogs to the pounds across the country. Let's speak to Garrett Shine, who's the Louth County Veterinarian. Good morning to you, Garrett, and thanks indeed for joining us. What's the situation in County Louth? Have you, have you seen an increase on that scale? Um, an increase in dogs coming through the pound mm. um, slightly yes we have but then it's a, probably a slight anomaly in that during the last two years maybe during COVID the numbers were probably disproportionately low because there's very few people about so but the numbers have started to rise again yeah. post-COVID I think actually during COVID you couldn't get a dog if you wanted to buy a dog uh, and uh, it became very popular they became, right, because yeah. people were working at home and that type of thing and then when they went back yeah. to the office they decided or realised that they hadn't got the wherewithal to look after a dog well that was it there were, there were a lot of people got into dogs that probably wouldn't normally have had a dog and maybe chose the wrong breed or rushed into it too quickly so um, there were quite a few issues like that how many dogs uh, would you receive in the pound uh, generally? Well, last year, our figure for 2022 was 288 dogs between strays and surrenders went through the pound last year. Okay. And what about surrenders? How many of those would have been surrenders? Um, the surrenders generally, it, it could be like about maybe just under half of them would be surrenders. So right. you'll be looking at them, certainly over 100 surrenders. Okay, and is it for the reasons we've just been discussing uh, that they got the dog during COVID? A whole whole variety of reasons, so yes. um, It is probably a fairly new phenomenon, the the, the, the post-COVID where people have been working from home and now they're back at the office, so they're they're, they're struggling to to, to look after the dog as as they would have hoped to. Mm. Um, Other reasons are... Um, and with the, the ongoing housing crisis, a lot of people, a lot of our surrenders, people say that they've you know, had to move into new accommodation. And there's either landlord rules where there's no pets or it's an apartment uh, that, that, that's just not suitable for a large dog. So that, that, that is another reason. Mm. And then fi- also, a lot of people during COVID did get dogs that were the wrong breed for their circumstances. Quite a few of them may have come from these so-called puppy farms and whatever, and they've had behavioural problems. So that was another sort of broad category of, of, of reason for surrender. Okay. Um, what happens to the dogs? Uh, are they all euthanized? No. Um, the vast majority are uh, are rehomed in some 
in some way, I mean, our, 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 our euthanasia figures are less than 5%. So it, it, you're talking single digits. Mm. Um, last year, we, of the 288 dogs through last year, only seven uh, were euthanized. Right, okay, uh, and I'm sure uh, you'd like that figure to be even lower. I, I know that uh, you don't like uh, to end a, a dog's life yeah. like that. Uh, no, it, we don't like it, but I, th- I think we have to be realistic yeah. as well, Michael. I mean, I, somebody who's, if you've got a pound and say you've got zero euthanasia, it, it probably doesn't always stack up. Unfortunately, the dogs, we have an outlet for all our dogs through the dog charities and the general public, so... Mm. If, if I looked at those individual seven dogs that were euthanized last year, there would be a very, very valid reason why each one of those euthanasias occurred. Very good. Uh, and if people surrender their dog, they surrender it to you at the pound, is it, rather than going to one of the dog charities, one of the rescue organisations? Well, I suppose they can do either. I mean, it's their decision. But um, certainly, you know, as a statutory function, we will accept in unwanted dogs from the county of Laos. So... Okay, that's all, Enid. All right, and, and there is still an awful lot of people who want dogs, and dogs can be very expensive, can't they? Um, and quite often, uh, through uh, some of these charities, uh, you can get a, a rescue dog uh, for nothing and rehouse it, which an awful lot of people do. Yeah, um, look, if you're going to any of these commercial breeders, you can pay a significant fee for a dog. Um, so, but then if you come to the pound, we just have a very, very modest standard rehoming fee. Um, we just charge €100 Euro for a rehome dog, and that includes a dog licence, a microchip, vaccinations, etc. So mm. it's practically a cost-neutral well, exercise. It's a, great way to, it's a great way to give a dog an, a, a, a new chance. Yeah, I presume you'd pay at least that uh, for uh, all of uh, those things, uh, like the licence, the microchip and so right. on. Uh, and I, I take it you've um, uh, all sorts of dogs. Uh, well, well, absolutely. I mean, as, as a pound... I mean, between the strays and the surrenders, you know, we, we, we have no control over what breed, type, age, whatever comes in. So we, mm. but so yes, we have we have a huge range. Yeah, mongrels and uh, full thoroughbreds. Absolutely. I mean, we've had some dogs. <coughs> excuse me, we've had some dogs in that we know would have been extremely expensive pur- purchases when they were pups and they've been surrendered by an owner with all their papers and everything. And so um, there's a dog that could have cost thousands when they bought it as a pup, and now you could, you could rehome it from us for €100. Euros. Mm, my God. Uh, do people at times uh, regret that they're surrendering their dog? Do they say, I oh, wish... There absolutely, was... absolutely. Yeah. Some mm. of the stories are really, really sad. Mm. Really, really sad. Especially the people who, through no fault of their own, had to say, move accommodation, and were left in a position where, where they can't take the, their, their, their pets with them. Um, so, but look, sometimes we can get happy outcomes. The gen- these people generally keep in contact with us. We had one just recently where there, there was an, uh, you know, a, quite an elderly German Shepherd and a wee small uh, Jack Russell, but they, grew, they were a pair and they were, you know, they, 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 were, they, were, they were friends all their life and we managed to rehome them as a, as a couple, so to speak. Mm. So the, the owner there, it, 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 it was a very happy over that. Very sad surrendering them, but very happy to see that they were rehomed as a pair. No, oh, I'm sure, uh, because people love their dogs, but dogs love dogs as well, and they can become great friends uh, when uh, they've uh, spent time together like that, and uh, breaking yeah. them up uh, is unthinkable. Of that, that made that rehoming exercise much, much easier. Absolutely uh, understandable. Um, and can people come to the pound uh, and look for dogs or do they uh, go to the, one of the charities? 
both. No, well, mm. no, well, no they, they, they can, if people are looking for a dog, obviously we'd always advise them to go either to the pound or a charity, take a rehome dog first, please. Um, we have all our dogs are always on our website. So if you go on to Loud County Council's website, you'll see a very up-to-date picture of what dogs are in at the pound, um, which ones, you know, and when they're available for rehoming. But likewise, people can just call into the pound. We're open Monday to Friday, um, 9 o'clock till half 12. So people can literally come in without an appointment and just come in during those hours and view the dogs directly. Okay. And they can speak to, speak to the wardens as well. Oh, very good. I'm too happy to give them give them any advice whatsoever on on the dogs that are in. Mm. How many dogs would be in the pound at the moment? Any idea? Oh, we're probably around about 10 or 12 at the moment. Okay, yeah. very good. All looking for a, a new home. Uh, Absolutely, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, and uh, euthanising them, um, not an easy option, as you say. Uh, I remember being in the pound with you years ago uh, and uh, seeing... Uh, some of uh, the dogs uh, who had been disposed um, very, very hard. Uh, I think for you, the wardens, and everybody involved, and uh, uh, yeah. but 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 not something it's, that it's a sea change. Look, twenty years ago, mm. Michael, you know, the euthanasia was it was huge. Like it was something like you know, you could have been forty, fifty, sixty percent euthanasia. Mm. Now it's down to like last year it was two percent. So mm. you know, it's it's um, virtually been eliminated. What do you put so, that down to? The charities uh, and I think social media probably has a, quite a bit to do with it because you see yeah. dogs on Facebook and all of that and people are scrambling to get them. Sometimes it's very difficult to get one of the dogs. Yeah, the, the, the value of a dog in people's minds has increased from 20 years ago it was a disposable item whereas now people completely value their dogs. I'm talking about 99.9% of people now. Mm. Um, so they will look after a dog better the more educated they know all what the dog needs with, with all its vaccinations and warming and etc. So they, they're, they're better set up to take the dog and then you know society in general you know has an expectation now that everyone will look after their dog properly that's not tolerated anymore mm. that, that if you don't look after your dog properly when we get tons of phone calls you know week in week out where people are you know uh, informing us of dogs that they think might be taken care of properly. So, like it, it even the general public now will will will, will intercede sometimes and, and not tolerate people not looking after their dog properly. Which is a, a great thing, no doubt. Uh, I suppose the other side of that is people might be hesitant to take a, a dog in case it has been mistreated and might have behavioural problems. Uh, do you come across that? We do, and um, we'll always give very very good advice and um, the. And the, the wardens here are very experienced, so um, we will give very good advice to the person rehoming the dog. We'll ask about their circumstances and their experience, etc. So quite often we will say that won't suit you, you know, that you're... And there are some dogs with behavioural problems, and we, we, we have outlets. There are breeds, rescue breed societies around the country for all the different breeds. There are different dog charities, and people will take some of these dogs and invest time in, in them through the charities and it might take months and months of them working with the dog and then it could be, become suitable for rehoming. Okay, Gareth, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, I think a, a lot of people will be interested, uh, particularly people uh, who are looking for a, a dog themselves uh, at uh, what you've had to tell us uh, this morning. Gareth Shine, the Louth County Veterinarian. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you earn less than €75,000 a year, you may be interested in the idea of retiring with a pension of €75,000 a year. Or I guess 
you may dream. Very interesting article in the Irish Independent today following a Freedom of Information request. Anne-Marie Walsh reports that the number of retired civil servants on pensions above €75,000 a year has risen by 81 since the pandemic. This means that there's 320 former civil servants who are on €75,000 a year and more or 13 former politicians and the cost of this is quite significant it would seem <laughs> in terms of how it's funded because of course we're funding it all of us are funding it through our taxes and the total value of all annual civil service pensions rose from 444 million euro in 2019 to 605.7 million euro last year that's an increase of over 160 million euro. The cost of ministerial pensions, by the way, if you're interested, has gone from 3.9 million to 4.1 million. Let's speak to Paddy Malone, who is uh, the PRO for the Dundalk Chamber of Commerce, but also an accountant uh, with Malone and Company Chartered Accountants. And good morning to you, Paddy, uh, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. There's very few of us, uh, I think, who could ever contemplate retiring with a pension of €75,000 a year. What would you have to be earning ordinarily to have a pension of that size? You couldn't uh, calculate it. I mean, years ago, the banks, Guinness and other significant employers would guarantee two-thirds ultimate pension uh, age. So in other words, if, if you were retiring on 100 grand, you would be going out with 66,000. That was the, the guilt edge pension. The banks and Guinness and other organisations all in the private sector 20 years ago recognised that that was unsustainable and couldn't be done for two reasons. One was interest rates, but more particularly people were living longer. I mean, the age of 65 was an artificial creation by a fellow called Bismarck back in Germany in 1871. (laughs) Okay, right. He he was a cynical Mm. politician who said to his statisticians, what's the average expectancy in in Germany? And they were told 64. He said, right, I'll give everyone over 65 a pension. Um, Mm. No. That, that, reminds, that, reminds me, that reminds me of Leo Radker, uh, <laughs> to be honest. Because I, I remember Leo Radker saying in, in an interview some years ago that uh, when the pension was introduced here, it was for people who were 70 and over, but most people didn't get to live to that age. Yeah, I mean, when, 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 what, what the principal point of all of this is this. David McWilliams said it 10 years ago on a programme, and it's stuck with me ever since, that the generation that I belong to in my 60s and in the in 50s are robbing the next generation coming below us, my daughter and my, and my son and other people. And he is 100% right. We are paying ourselves pensions which are unsustainable and unbelievable, and we need to be honest with it. This morning in another article in the paper, I don't know whether it's the same article or not, we now live till 81 on average, males in Ireland. Now, that means that when my father was younger, it was five years after 60, you were actually 70, 65 to 70, you had to pay for five, the state had to pay for five years. Now it's been expected to pay for nearly 20 years after retirement. It pays for the first 20 years of your existence as a kid going through college. So half your year, half your lifetime, you are dependent on the state. And the idea that a pension can pay for all of that is just ludicrous. And we've got to be realistic and honest with it. Because what's happening is, today's politicians know it's tomorrow's problem 
and they're not addressing it properly. And we need to be much more open and much more frank about it. Now, for some people, 65 might be too old to retire if you're doing a manual job or there's some other reason why it's not the right way to go. And then there are others like myself. 65 is too young at this stage. Mm. And we need to be honest. And I would say most civil servants, 65 is too young. You've still got you know, a third of your life to go and you shouldn't be retiring at that age. Or if you do want to go, that you go at reduced pension rates. Um, but as I said, I have seen government after government coming in in the last 20 years, and the Minister for Social Welfare says, I'm going to tackle this problem, and then he's brought quietly, he or she is brought quietly aside, and it's uh, another commission going to be looking at it. Okay, uh, but when you talk about uh, the state pension, uh, that's what, €265 Euro or thereabouts. Yeah. Uh, and I presume that the former civil servants uh, who are enjoying their private pension of 75000 a year received the 265 on top of that. In some cases, yes, if they've been paying Class A1 rates, yes. Not about, not, not, not about, the problem you have is this, when you're you know, coming out of college or coming out of school and you're looking at jobs, no one is thinking about the pension that's going to be there at the end, except a very small number of people. Mm. Uh, so you're looking at the private sector against the, and you're comparing apples and oranges and you're saying the gross salary in both cases is X, I'll go to the private sector, not realising that the real benefit, and it's a significant cost, is the cost at the far end. Um, and as I said, only the state can afford to give it. I mean, when Aer Lingus and uh, other state organisations went uh, public, they had to renegotiate with the unions because they just simply, the, the, the figures to, to actually pay for the pension deficit that was in the books was so large, it, it couldn't be done. So the, this is a problem. If, I mean, I'm, old, I'm, too old, I'm too young to remember the primary cert, okay? So, mm. Michael, just let's get that one out of the way first okay. before somebody rings me up. <laughs> but I do remember learning mm. compound interest. And that's really what we're talking about here. It's pretty simple. And those of us who have mortgages know what a, you know that we might borrow 100,000 from the bank, but we're paying back 180, 190. Mm. That's the interest cost, and that's what's crippling this country in terms of pay. And you said it increased by 190,000 in the last five years, or 50 percent. That rise is going to get more and more significant every five years from now on, because our population is getting older as we progress. Mm. Now, maybe some amount of immigration will keep that figure a wee bit more under control. But long term, it is a ticking time bomb and it's tomorrow's problem. So the politicians won't face it today. But you mentioned mortgages. You'd presume uh, that the 320 former civil servants who get a pension of over €75,000 a year, plus the state pension of €265 a, a week, don't have a mortgage, that they'd have paid no. off their mortgage, that they'd have no, paid I, off I, their I car like loan if they had a car loan. They wouldn't really have any debts. They wouldn't really have any outgoings uh, as such. No. no, they have no... Is, is it at all justifiable? I, I mean, when you have 400,000 people in energy arrears and the government is spending 605 million on pensions, is it at all justifiable? No, it's not. But the problem you have is this is a long-term problem and the Minister of Finance has to stand up and so the public service has to stand up and say... People coming in from now on are not going to be guaranteed this sort of a level of a pension for the rest of their lives. But the problem is, if the minister does not make, makes that decision, and there are changes coming, there's no question whether the government is tackling it. It's just they've been talking about doing it for 20 years, and it's snail's pace, and that's, it, this is a problem that's much more urgent than that. The problem it is, even if he addressed the issue tomorrow morning, 
anybody who's in the system, who's working in the civil service, who's working in the public service, is already in. And they're not going to release their pension entitlements, whether it's a teacher or somebody in the public service or somebody in the civil service. They're not going to let go of that. It's too valuable. Mm. It's very valuable. Yeah. So I don't blame people for fighting to hold on to the benefits they have. Mm. I blame the people who gave it to them in the first place. And well, that's saying, us, isn't it? That's uh, every well, that's taxpayer. Our politicians. Well, we well they're deciding what to do with our money, but it's our money that's paying it. Yes. And I can remember years ago talking to a certain minister uh, and pointing out to him that the EU required us to change the law. And he looked at me and he said, Paddy, when? And I said, in the next three years. And he said to me, will we get re-elected next year, Paddy? And I said, not a hope in hell. He said, well, then it's not my problem, it's the next guy's. Mm. Somebody uh, telling us uh, in a text that their non-contributory pension is €252 a week, and they have a lot of question marks after that, and I can understand why. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the only saving grace of the non-contributory pension is that the the number of people on non-contributory pensions is actually getting less and less, because in 1989 the government brought in a rule that even the self-employed were now on some form of a pension scheme. So that those people are nearly all through the system so that most self-employed people now do have a pension, do have a pension. Now, if you weren't working out for those other circumstances, yes, you're still going to be on the non-contributory. And that is so ridiculously means-tested in relation to houses and relation to assets that you have that it's very, very unfair and very intrusive. I've had a couple of cases on a pro bono work when I've done them, and quite honestly, you know, I, I've shouted on the phone at the social, social welfare people asking questions, and they've looked back, they've the answered back is, Paddy, I have to fill in the form. I know it's not right, and I know it's not fair. Um, and that's what we're talking about. I mean, mm. let, you know, but until the government tackle the problem in an honest way and say, we can't afford this, and as I said, it's no disrespect to the government. No one can afford it. Mm. Where we were 150 years ago, life expectancy and everything else has got nothing to do with yep. today's world. Yeah. But nice money if you can get it, retired money if you with a pension it. of €75,000. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. but the one thing that I would emphasise, in all seriousness, the earlier you start saving for a pension, the better. Mm. And it doesn't matter what age you are, it's still worth doing until you're 76. Okay, Patty. In which case you there. can't, there's no tax relief on it. But for mm. God's sake, even if you're 70, it's worthwhile doing it if you're walking. Okay? Uh, okay, Patty, I have to leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Patty Malone of Malone and Company Chartered Accountants is the PRO for Dundalk Chamber of Commerce. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, cracking the case inside the mind of a top Garda, Christy Mangan, has been published by Penguin Sandy Cove and indeed we're joined in studio this morning by the former Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan. Good morning to you and nice to see you back in this studio this morning. Well known obviously locally uh, for uh, the last few years uh, that uh, you spent uh, in this part of the world looking after policing here and indeed at such a turbulent time Uh, but that uh, brought to the end a 40 year career, uh, a very impressive career indeed 
indeed uh, some of uh, the most notorious crimes ever committed in the state uh, were ones that you've investigated and brought people to justice for. Uh, but uh, you tell us a little bit about yourself in the book as well that maybe many of our, our listeners didn't know and certainly uh, some interesting artefacts for me if you like. Uh, you're a Mead man through and through. Uh, Mam and dad uh, from Mead uh, and that's uh, where you were brought up. Good morning Michael. Uh, delighted to be here. Um, yes, uh, a Mead man through and through. I was actually born in Dunshockland so I can't get uh, any, anything better than that. Um, so I, mm. I lived in Dunshockland for a long number of years uh, growing up there in, in the 60s and 70s. Um, would have played a lot of sport uh, in particular handball. Mm. Up again, the the, the the Garda barracks wall uh, against the local guards. Um, so would have got to know one of, one or two of them from the area. Um, the sergeant there was a big influence on you, wasn't he? Sergeant Seamus McGee. Mm, mm. Uh, he was, uh, you know, a, a very imposing figure, but mm. kept kept us all right as as all the guards did. Uh, probably a more simpler time where you could offer very strong advice to people to go home when they should go home. Um, so maybe maybe simpler days, but um, yes, he was a, he was a, an inf- certainly an influence on my life as to you know consider joining the guards. But look at there are a number of factors at play in 1982. You know, there's not much work, uh, mm. very very bad economic times, and uh, I, along with uh, a thousand women and uh, men, joined the guards in 1982. There was a huge influx. Um, so I suppose when you mm. look at the numbers now. Or then compared to now, it, it's it's absolutely phenomenal. Back back in the eighties, the amount of guards that were brought in, and um, because look at the country was in a, a state of chaos there then then as well with a lot of very serious crime happening. You were very young though; you were just twenty years of age. And I know later on in your career, uh, at one stage you were investigating sixteen murders at the same time over yeah. well over a three year period, yeah. but. Uh, do you think that uh, your work as an undertaker, as a teenager, helped to prepare you for that type of death, that amount of death in your life? I don't know whether anything would prepare you, but, but look at it, it, it mm. certainly would assist you. I would say joining the guards at 20, too young, definitely too young. I would say you, you probably need to go out. Uh, look, at I, I didn't go to college at the time. I, I went back to college in my mid-40s and, and uh, completed a degree that I should have done maybe in my 20s. But economic times were, were, were very tough so you, you have to take a deep breath um, to be fair there's a certain level of training given to you as a senior investigating officer so is that you're uh, you have the skill set that is necessary to investigate uh, serious crimes but mm. what I would say is so many crimes in, in April 2005 I was in Fitzgibbon Street in, in Dublin and uh, we had Unfortunately, four murders in one month, and the same team of detectives uh, who were with us. I was the detective inspector, but you have a team of detectives: sergeants Colin Fox would have been one, uh, Jerry McDonald and Liam Hickey. So you have the same team of detectives, basically investigating the the serious uh, crime. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And that can cause a big strain on people particularly because you're also dealing with the, the crime that happens every day. Mm. Unfortunately, in Dublin, you know, you would have a large volumes of robberies, burglaries, other serious assaults. So you have to deal with all those, those crimes as well. So the workload um, now is huge on, on senior investigating officers, and it does cause a strain. And I've seen it because I would have been involved in developing the senior investigating officers program in Templemore. And then uh, subsequently, I would have been on interview boards, final interview boards for senior investigating officers to see how they've progressed. And I would mm. have seen, you know, that there there's huge pressures and there, there are huge pressures, not alone in this jurisdiction, but all over the world for senior investigating officers, because you're it. You're the person that's charged with making sure that that investigation goes from the scene to the courtroom. And that, that sometimes can take a long time. Mm. Do you ever think... Uh, that while you may have been green around the kills uh, when you joined the force at 20, that you were destined to be a guard. Uh, I mean, yeah, you stared down the barrel of a gun when you were 14 years of age, weren't you? Yeah, and and, and, and Navin, <laughs> uh, well, look at it, I suppose that was, yeah, it was an unusual uh, thing. I, 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 I went to school in St. Uh, St. Patrick's Classical School, a very fine school uh, in Navin, and um, uh, look at uh, a moment of madness uh, as a young fella, with a, a very good friend of mine, we decided we, what's known locally in Navin uh, as the Bounce or the Mitch. Uh, we called, we would have always called it the Bounce. So anyway, we thought it was a great idea. We go on the Bounce, and we went down along the ramparts in Navin. Maybe from Navin, we'll know where that is, down at the Boyne. But uh, my my good friend uh, fell into the Boyne, uh, slipped in. And thankfully, he was a strong swimmer. But they they they, they tie our days. The current took him away, and hmm. I was very worried that he wasn't going to be able to get out. But anyway. He made his way out, but he was drenched. And then, uh, been a very cold day. Obviously, how are we going to get him dry? We lit a fire that didn't work anyway. In fact, we all we smelled, smelled of was, was smoke then. So, it was suggested by him go up to his mam's house and uh, get a set of clothes. Which that's great. That's a great idea. So I went up and I got the clothes anyway, and I'm coming back down um, in my innocence, and um, you literally walk into what you could have said was a large film set with men with balaclavas and military style uniforms and they're t- they're taken over the town uh, large rifles and um, well there's a lot of shouting going on obviously and they're robbing the bank mm. and uh, as I'm there uh, you know watching all this in in, in, in amazement um, 
I spotted my sister who was legitimately down the town because she was on, a, on an errand and um, I said right okay the robbery took place the gun has been pointed that you don't move dude you know usual shouting and roaring that goes on in an armed robbery and I slipped off in my own quiet way delivered the clothes to my, my, my friend and uh, when I went home that evening my sister Patricia was you know relaying the, the, the dramatic story that had taken place in Navan and it was all over the news everybody was talking about it there had been shots fired and uh, the guards had chased uh, the robbers and, and, and uh, did very well in, in uh, arresting some of them so I had to sit there and sit at the table, stum, say nothing, and um, keep it, keep it, keep it to myself mm. because uh, I would have been in serious trouble. But yeah. anyway, I suppose yeah. I, I did learn. Be where you should be. Yeah, a bold boy. Yeah, a bold, a bold boy. <laughs> Definitely a bold boy. Yeah. Uh, do, do, do you have any idea of how strange it is to my ears to hear you? And you're obviously a very experienced policeman, but to talk about the usual roaring and shouting that goes right. on at an armed robbery. It's, yeah. it's alien to most people, but that's the life that you've lived. 40 years policing. Yeah. Very, very serious crime. And I, I think after reading your book, I've realised that you're a very brave man. And you've been awarded twice yeah. in 88 and 96 uh, on two different occasions you received the Scott Medal I, yeah, well I suppose it's the classic flight or flight syndrome so look at you're, you're a police person you're there to protect people so you know in 88 um, you know I'd, I'd um, gone into work it's Christmas Eve you're working 2 to 10 looking forward to it look at everybody's looking forward to Christmas it's, there's a great buzz I actually really like Christmas it's, it's, I think it's a great time for children and families it's not so good for other people sometimes uh, it can be lonely but um, you know I, I, my wife had asked me my wife did, had asked me make sure you get the Christmas card okay no problem so I was working with um, um, Michael Minogue, who, who's, his, whose daughter actually was a big star last Sunday in the, in the Camogie, and she'll be out next Saturday again, Aoife. So we um, we went about our, you know, normal, it's going to be busy. The sergeant told us, listen, guys, it's going to be busy, so just, just be on, on your toes. So I couldn't get into the Crumlin Shopping Centre, which you'd know fairly well. Uh, it was chocker blocked to the door, so anyway, about turn. And I decided I'd, I'd, I'd inch, inch, inch my way up to Galtimore Road. I actually, it was my first week driving the patrol car, so the sergeant had told me, whatever you do, mind that car, because we're scarce, anyway. Mm. And um, as we're going up through Drimna, up through Keeper Road there, um, we get a call to say that an armed robbery had taken place in Walkinstown. Be mindful of what has happened. So then you head up Galtimore Road, and the stolen car is there. Guy wearing the balaclava, he's in the, in the passenger seat, he's his head down. Or sorry, he's in the driver's seat. He has his head down and uh, I jammed the car in automatic, put it in park. Bingo, he's not going to be get out, I think, anyway. So then he started ramming the car and um, the words of my sergeant were in my mind, don't come back with the car damaged. But um, um, Mick uh, got out of the car, went round the back of the stolen car and the stolen car hit him. I thought he was dead. I genuinely thought he was dead. And then you're trying to open the door to the driver's side and as you're doing that, He's ramming our car. There's a lot of smoke as he's spinning the wheels. And then you go around and there's two of them coming out, uh, both wearing balaclava's guns. Um, one of them um, was pretty tall. I think we found out later on he was over six foot four. A big man. And he's screaming and roaring at you not to move, not to move. Uh, he just, he glanced away for some reason, a millisecond. There were a lot of people around the place because mm. obviously Christmas Eve. And between Mick and myself, we took him down arrested him, charged him and uh, the other two got away in the stolen car and they did a nice bit of damage to the patrol car. But it's, look, at it, it happens in a millisecond. Yeah. 
if you to make a decision to do something and um, thankfully it worked out mm. uh, you know okay Scott medals are awarded for acts of bravery uh, but there's a lot of guards tragically who were awarded you know medals posthumously Posthum, yeah. they lost mm-hmm. their lives mm-hmm. so I, mm-hmm. I would have always said I was extremely lucky mm-hmm. in all the instances I've been involved mm-hmm. in I was never shot um, but there were a lot of other guards paid a, a very heavy price for trying mm-hmm. to deal with armed criminals because mm. it, it's a great uh, award I think for any officer to receive it's uh, but to receive it's it twice uh, yeah. which you did uh, is almost unique isn't it I mean I think there's only 12 or 13 people there's 12, 12. have received it um, it is it, 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 it's, it, it is rare it is rare yeah it, it definitely is rare because it has to go to uh, for consideration and then a, a, a committee sits and, and, and examines it so yes it, it is certainly it's um but it's not something you go out looking for. I can tell you that, Michael. Mm. You don't go out looking for this. No, I'm sure. It's yeah. it's a it's a it's a difficult situation you're going to be in when you when you know you're facing somebody with guns. Um, and look at it's 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 millisecond decisions you're making. Mm. Okay, well you're uh, telling uh, some of uh, the stories about your career and cracking the case inside the mind of a top guard. Uh, the book is published, uh, and we're going to hear a little bit more uh, about uh, some of your career and uh, I think uh, indeed your time in County Loud after the break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we are back with uh, former Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan, who has just published uh, the story of his 40 year career. The book is called Cracking the Case Inside the Mind of a Top Garda. Uh, you said uh, that uh, you wanted to make special mention in your book uh, to the Red Door Project and to Fasten uh, because. Uh, of the feud here and the work that both those organisations do with people who have addiction problems. Uh, you got very close to both organisations and you would feel that they're very important parts of this community reclaiming uh, its pride in itself. Look, at in in the middle of, of the war that was going on here in, in Drogheda, um, you're looking for solutions. Uh, you're looking for help because the guards can't do this on their own. They certainly can't. Some people may think that it, that the guards it's it's a, a justice problem um it's not in in totality maybe in some ways it is people selling drugs and dealing drugs um but when we were you know in in huge difficulties with particularly with families who were been intimidated and targeted by criminals who were intent on burning their houses out and um, they'll fasten the family addiction support network which we have you know Jackie and Gwen McKenna and then the Red Door project um, like they, they I would always say they're the unsung heroes of, of you know helping the communities and they have to be sufficiently resourced Mm. There's no point in giving them a, a minimal budget. Mm. They're not. They're not. Uh, and they weren't when Vivian Guerin looked yeah. at this and made his recommendations. And you write about the Guerin report yeah. in your book as well and the potential for uh, positive change if all of those recommendations mm. were recommended. Uh, there's been some improvement, but not to the extent that was recommended or that or their, uh, either organisation uh, would feel is necessary and appropriate and it would appear that in a year from now the implementation board is going to be wound down. Well the Gearing report was a blueprint for the future and it could be a blueprint for a lot of towns uh, you know around Ireland but if his recommendations are not 
implemented in totality. And we're told we have huge surplus budgets in the country at the moment. We have billions, billions. That's that's what they tell us. And they're looking for where they're going to put the money. Are they going to put it in some sort of accounts? They're going to spend it on, on, on different areas. But I, I would say if you if you if you look at Drogheda and say, how did it happen? I often thought to myself, how, how, how do we end up in this absolutely criminal mess? It's not a mess has happened. Thing, things go wrong. But it's a criminal mess when people are been badly hurt. People are getting shot. People lose their lives. So somebody has to say, right, how do we get here and why do we get here? So you then have Vivian Guerin does his report, which is fine. But unless every recommendation is implemented in totality, it's very, very easy to slip back. And if you slip back, you're, you're going to be in another mess in five to ten years time. Do you think Trahada is slipping back? I would hope they're not. Mm. I would hope they're not. Are you disappointed at the pace of implementing the recommendations? Well, I get no more information than you would do from, and, and I look at it intently. I really am interested in, in, in Drogheda, and, and in particular Loud, because I, the people of Loud, mm. fantastic people. Well, Merchants Key has taken over from FASA yeah. now, and that's getting the funding that was yeah. recommended to and give to FASA, and you're very aware of There would be disappointment. There is a lot of disappointment. Disappointment locally, and it is not huge money that Loud needs. Loud is not looking for millions and millions. It's looking for sufficient funding to deal with the difficulties that are here. And that's what I would say, you know, to our political representatives at a government level. Our local politicians were hugely supportive to me, to be fair. Very, very good. They they helped me get resources, every one of them, and, and they, they really came out and supported me. And you make but that clear. You even published Absolutely. letters that were yeah. written to the minister, signed by all of the local yeah. politicians. Uh, sure. But the problem here is at central government level yes. with the minister, Helen McEntee, yes. uh, and uh, indeed uh, Hildegard Nocton, who would have uh, yeah. responsibility for the drug strategy, who seems to have absolutely no understanding of uh, the services available in this region and Fasten and the work that they do uh, but Fasten seems to have been sidetracked Fasten have lost they, they haven't got the, the the level of support financially uh, and resources and obviously look at if you haven't got it financially you can't get the resources so I was would have seen the Trojan work done by Fasten in particular with families who are in difficulty and it's not just the addict the person who's addicted to drugs it's about the mum or dad it's about the sister or brother who are living in this chaotic environment. The f- drug dealers coming, screaming, you know, some guy's six foot three, four, and he's there and he's gnarling at your door and he wants a uh, thousand euros and he's coming back in, in a, a, a week's time and he's five thousand euros and then a petrol bomb goes in. And uh, people have, have drawn that know this better than me. And then all of a sudden, then how did they come? How did, how did they pay it? Mm. Some people then have to go into debt. So unless we get at the root cause of it, and one of the ways to deal with it is demand reduction, and that is putting the services in that when a, a young guy or whatever, our lady on, on a Monday morning gets up and says, right, my life is going down, down the tubes, I need to get help. So I will go to one of these agencies, uh, the Red Door, and say, right, I want to get off drugs. So can they get on a course immediately? No, they can't, because there's a queuing system, and, and that's, that's a fact of life. So if we don't invest in the demand reduction, it'll have a huge impact in less than a year mm. because those people then, if they're working, that's fine. They can, they can, they can finance their own habits, 
you know, and, and that they will survive for a certain period of time until it impacts them maybe in their job and then maybe they, they lose the job. But then there's other people who don't have the wherewithal maybe to have the, the high power job to pay for their a thousand euros a week maybe addiction problem. And then they start to get involved in criminality and then it drags down them and then it drags down the family unit. Mm. And then it starts dragging down the housing estate that they're living in. And it, it's literally like an infectious disease. It just takes over a town. Mm. And Drogheda is only what, over 41,000, a prosperous town in one way. But when you, you go in and look at it, you see then there's an underbelly there, mm. an underbelly of criminality. And it's in every town. It's in, in a lot of villages. And unless we deal with the drug addiction, the crime, the guards, yeah, that's their job. Get on yeah. with it. De- deal with it. But you give a very clear impression in your book that the underbelly nearly took over and Absolutely. that the guardie, that the state yeah. almost lost control because yes. it, it was so serious. There's an awful lot of other crimes that you've investigated that yeah. uh, if we had time, we'd spend another yeah. uh, several hours discussing. Uh, but uh, time is running out, isn't it? And I want to conclude on, on uh, that terrible feud that we all live through in, in County Louth. Uh, you say in your book uh, that you met people who had uh, debts of up to thirty thousand euro, where their children had debts uh, uh, of that size, but there were some very uh, surprising things. Uh, you met with one of the gangland leaders uh, at one stage, trying to broker peace between uh, the two sides. That didn't work out. You went to Pave Point because mm-hmm. one of uh, the sides in this feud involved travellers, uh, and at one point you contemplated bringing in the army. Mm-hmm. But so serious was the feud uh, that you learned of a, a planned petrol bomb attack on the Garda station. On the Garda Drogheda. station, yeah. yeah. Look, at, uh, negotiation, n- negotiating with criminals is not in the police handbook for dealing with uh, investigations. But I would have worked in a number of areas through 40 years. Look, at, you're, you're going to meet a lot of different situations. So I've been involved with disputes before. So if you're not actually, if you're not preventing them from attacking each other, you have to decide, right, are we going to negotiate here, not to let people off of crimes, but to calm the situation down, to say, listen here, stop attacking families, stop attacking mamas and dads, stop it, uh, you know, threatening to throw acid in women's faces. So I did. I certainly did. I said, right, OK, I'm going to have to talk to some of some of the people who have control here. Uh, very respectful they were to me, you know, listened to what I had to say, but said no, uh, that we're going to continue on with their actions. But then that, that sets that in stone. There's not going to be a negotiated settlement between the two of them. They're not going to deal with it. And I have dealt with in other areas where you do sit down with Grimms and say, listen, this has to stop because it's only going to end up in debt. And they do. They pull back and they say, right, OK, we're not going to go to the brink. Uh, we're not going to push push the nuclear option here. And then things got certainly got very, very bad. You're, you, I, I, I'm the one that's charged with dealing with this and ultimately the book stops with me and I'm the one that makes the decisions, good or bad. So then you're sitting there saying, right, we have Operation Stratus, it's having an impact in some ways, uh, really good seizures of drugs, guns, but long term it's, it's not doing it and then you have people saying that they're terrified, they can't come out. So, you know, ultimately the army are an aid to the civil power. And, um, you know, it would be the last resort you would you would decide to to, to go to. But I certainly did contemplate it. Um, and then, thankfully, with all the agitation by the politicians and all the agitation by the people of Drogheda, like 5,000 people stood out there on the, the Bridge of Peace, eventually 
they gave us the resources, the wherewithal to set up the investigations and then move on long term. But that shouldn't be allowed to happen in any other any other town or village in Ireland. There should be some, you know, there should be, a, you know, a system whereby somebody says, right, OK, it's getting very hot in Navan, it's getting very hot in Trim or it's getting very hot in Galway. We need to bring in and an, an, a, a task force here to stop, stop that. They've done that in the city centre now at the moment. They're bringing in. But surely, you know, people who have the wherewithal should be able to spot that happening six, 12 months beforehand and say, right, we need to put an end to that uh, and never have another drought of the situation happen again because it was absolutely dire. Um, we had uh, a lot of young policemen and women here and, you know, they've got five, six years experience under them, but they were coming here trying to deal with very, very serious incidents. They, they never saw that. They never, I, look, at, unfortunately, I've seen it and, and I'd be able to deal with it. And then the terrible impact that it leaves with the families who live here in Drogheda. So nobody ever wants to see that again. And it's up to the Garda leadership and political leadership to make sure it doesn't happen again. Okay. Good to see you in here. Good uh, to see you, Michael. Congratulations on the book. It's really fascinating reading. Thank you. Uh, for many reasons other than that loud story, uh, but uh, obviously you take us through that feud step by step uh, along the way and it was not uh, good remembering it, uh, no. but uh, it really is mapped out forensically like everything you do, I'd say, Christy. Uh, but uh, thank you indeed no problem. for coming into us uh, this morning. Cracking the Case Inside the Mind of a Top Guard by Christy Mangan is uh, published by Penguin Sandy Cove uh, and probably not uh, available very <laughs> in very many places. It's sold out, isn't it? Well, they're, they're on a they're doing a reprint yeah. of it, so it, it is in Easton's yeah. and it's on Amazon and different different sites like very that. Good. So they they have another reprint done, so there will be plenty out there in the next day or two. Okay, very good. Thank you for coming into us this morning, Chris. Thank you, Michael. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you were listening to us uh, yesterday, uh, you may have heard us talk about the Thomas Darcy McGee Summer School, which will be held on Tuesday and Wednesday of next week in Carlingford. uh, Linda Irvine of uh, the Tourist Project is one of uh, the speakers at uh, the Summer School and Linda joins us this morning. And uh, a very good morning to you, Linda, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, People will uh, think uh, that uh, they uh, have heard of your name before and they probably will have heard of your husband, Brian, who uh, led the Progressive Unionist Party after his uh, brother, David Irvine. Uh, But uh, you're an Irish language enthusiast. How do you uh, balance that or how can you explain that to our listeners? Well, it's, it seems very simple to me. Um, I started learning Irish about 11 years ago. Um, it caused a wee, wee bit of interest in the local media because my husband was the leader of the Progressive Unionist Party at the time and a number of other people then in my community um, expressed a desire to learn Irish as well. So we started off classes. That went on and was funded from Forest McGillica 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago now. We actually um, started a, a project as part of East Belfast Mission, which I, I went on to become the manager of. It has grown phenomenally over the years. Um, last year, we signed up 500 people for Irish classes, the majority of whom are from the, the Protestant Unionist Loyalist community. Um, we also started a scholarship scheme where we helped to fund people to go to university. And a number of people now are, are in the process of doing degrees, will be finishing their degree next year. And we've put a number of people through the Irish language 
and diploma. Mm. We also started an Irish Median Nursery School and we're hoping that will become a fun school next year. So there's a okay. lot happening. We're very busy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, really surprising. And of course, none of this could have happened 25 years ago before the Good Friday uh, Agreement. And uh, I suppose much of uh, the conversation over the course of uh, the two days next week in Carlingford will have to do with 25 years after the signing of uh, the Accord. Uh, but uh, how can you explain to us, uh, not just yourself, uh, but uh, as you say, members of uh, the loyalist uh, unionist community uh, taking up the Irish language, is that not considered by their neighbours as treachery? Well, I think there's a, there's a lot of different opinions around it. So um, one of the things that struck me again when you know the media got the hold of the story was that interest from other people within the Protestant community. And I wasn't prepared for so much interest. And I think it's because, you know, a lot of us, you know, we are Irish. We're born in this island. We might be British, but we're still Irish. And the language is all around us. And, you know, when you introduce people to the fact that it's, you know, in all your place names and many of our surnames, it's in words that we use in our everyday speech. And I think it's important that people from the Protestant community have never had the chance to engage with the language here in Northern Ireland. So nobody had ever told me that I was born in Belfast, yeah. Nobody ever told me that Lisna Sharach was up the road from me or Crossmagunyani. I had no knowledge of that. And when you introduce people to that, you know, at first they're shocked. And then I think like myself, they're a little bit saddened that they'd never been allowed to know that and they want to know more. Now, hostility still exists. There's no doubt about it because, unfortunately, a lot of people from, I see the loyalist community in Northern Ireland, they associate the language with mm. republicanism, with the troubles of the past. And it's hard, I kind of say, it's the, the sort of Chucky Arla syndrome, mm. and it's hard to disconnect them from that. But, you know, we're not denying that part of the language's history. But what we're saying is that's a very small slice of a much bigger cake. And we introduce people to the fuller knowledge of the language. The fact that the language went over to Scotland, mm. went over to the Isle of Man, is now, you know, sister languages. People are fascinated by that. Mm. And again, the links to the Presbyterian Church, the links to the Church of Ireland Church. I mean, the Presbyterian General Assembly in the 1830s called the Irish language our sweet and memorable mother tongue. Again, I'm a Presbyterian. Nobody ever told me that that was the history of my church. So people, I think, want to connect into it. And also, I suppose, another thing that interests me is I have a friend who started learning Irish and somebody said to her, you know, why Why is a Protestant, would, would you, you know, working class Protestant, why would you be interested in the language? Mm. And she said, well, I find it more surprising, actually, that you wouldn't be interested in the language when it's all around you. Okay. You're steeped in it, mm. you know? I know, but I still <laughs> still find it hard to understand and still find it terribly <laughs> interesting. And I still think that the people you were talking about uh, a moment ago would say that it, it's treachery. Uh, but uh, you... Uh, it was Some very of them cu- do. Some of them do. I'm sure, but, yeah. Know, I, mean, I thought it was very curious what you said there a moment ago, Linda. You said you might be British, but you're Irish. Uh, how, do you define, <laughs> how do you define yourself? Well, I'm I'm both British and Irish. You know, I'm British because I live in a part of Ireland that is part of the UK, and I'm perfectly happy with that. But I've been born on the island of Ireland. So, of course, I'm Irish. If I'd been born in Scotland, I would be both British and Scottish or Welsh or whatever. So why would I deny my Irishness? 
I never thought of myself as anything but Irish. Um, you know, my parents, my grandparents, and obviously, you know, when my grandparents would have been born, Ireland was still, you know, there was no partition. So, you know, my husband, Brian, regards himself as Irish. Why we are Irish, you know? That's okay. not a political statement. That's a, that's a geographical statement. Okay, uh, next uh, Tuesday you'll be part of a, a panel that will s- discuss the builders uh, of uh, the Good Friday Agreement and building on what has been uh, achieved. Uh, I suppose uh, it's topical to mention the visit of uh, the Taoiseach to Belfast today to meet with uh, the various political party leaders in the hope uh, that someone will see sense and restore the political institutions. And I, I take it that needs to be the first step in building on what was achieved 25 years ago. Very much. And, you know, I think what was done 25 years ago was actually quite amazing. My husband always describes it as they turned Titanic in a bathtub, you know. And, you know, the years coming up, uh, you know, it didn't look like it was going to happen. And then bang, it did. And I know myself, you know, I was born at the end of 1961. The troubles were just always a backdrop to your life. I hoped there would be peace in my children's time. I certainly didn't think it would happen in my time. And then it did. But unfortunately, over the last 25 years, our political parties have let us down and they haven't made best use of the the resources that we were given, um, you know, both politically and financially to make this place work. And, you know, we can't give up hope. I think there's good people, there's good work being done in the community. And I think most people just want to move on. But I, mm. I personally believe some of our politicians are holding us back. Without giving up hope, would you be concerned at all? Because uh, I think uh, the peace process uh, is still in its infancy and as a result remains very fragile. No, I I have hope and I have hope because of the young people in our country and I feel that they want something better and they want something different. Sadly for um, people like myself, I think sometimes my generation will all have to be dead before we realise the full potential of the peace process, you know, that. so I may not, never live to see it, and I think my children and my grandchildren will. Mm, okay. I, I actually relate it to your own situation, um, you know, post-Civil War. It took a long time, but, you know, 100 years on, you're in peace with yourselves. Mm. Okay, well, uh, let's hope that that is uh, the case. Uh, It's uh, certainly something that is more than important to all of us of a certain age. And the most wonderful thing, uh, I think, Linda, is, as you say, how young people uh, don't remember the troubles uh, and uh, are the reason for us having hope. Uh, People uh, can hear more from you uh, next Tuesday in Carlingford, uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for taking our call and joining us today. That's uh, Linda. Irvine of uh, the Tourist Project uh, who will be at the Thomas Darcy McGee Summer School in Carlingford next Tuesday. Michael Reed on LMFM. Ireland needs thousands more carers uh, to help people live at home and in order to get them they need uh, to uh, reform uh, the system of how carers are paid. Uh, Indeed we do need uh, plenty more carers uh, as I think many people will testify because they can't get the hours or or they can't get carers at all and uh, you'll hear stories of people having to go into nursing homes 
homes because they can't live independently with the assistance of carers. Joseph Musgrave is the CEO of Home and Community Care Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Joseph. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. You're talking in your pre-budget submission about reforming how carers are valued and indeed how they're paid for their work. Uh, Tell us a a little bit of how the situation can be improved and to make this a sector that's attractive for people to work in. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yes, you know, over the past, I would say, a couple of years since COVID, uh, we're a couple of years on now, we've seen gradual and slow progress, but we're not living up to the the government's promise of home first. Their programme for government says they'll have a home first approach. And to make that a reality, we need a couple of things. We need to see the waiting lists go down. We're seeing a gradual trend of the waiting list coming down from 6,500 to just over 6,000. But that's still far many, far too many people waiting for home care. And we've seen some small steps in order to really make the lifeblood of the service, which is our home carers, feel valued. So what's happened recently over the past couple of months is we have negotiated that carers will be paid the national living wage as a minimum. They will be paid travel time. But there are some key missing things for basically the deal on offer to carers. Number one is that living wage is not, there's no commitment by the HSC or the government to uprate that in line with changes to the living wage. So I think we saw, you know, the uh, minimum wage, the recommendation for the minimum wage to go up 10%. If the recommendation for the living wage is also to go up 10%, we should see that reflected in carers' wages is number one. Mm. But one of the most important things we need to do is guarantee continuity of income for our carers. Right now, if their client goes into hospital, suspends their care, goes on holiday, that carer does not get paid. And they have to either be reassigned or they're out of work uh, for or they're, they're, they're missing wages. So what happens here? is carers up and down the country who are providing a service we say we value so highly, and I think we should value it highly. We're not following through. We're not putting our money where our mouth is, frankly, in terms of the government here. And that would mean, it means that carers can struggle to get car loans. They can struggle to get mortgages, these sorts of everyday things that make life worth living and, and you know, and it's success in life. We don't give them access to that because we don't guarantee that continuity of income. So I think that's, just a preview of some of the things we need to do to make the deal on offer to our carers match what we say we want, which is a home-first approach to care in this country. Okay. Um, We have a a crisis, do we not, as things exist? Uh, I mean, if uh, there aren't people there to provide care for elderly people who have to go to nursing homes as things stand, uh, you really have a a serious problem. That shouldn't happen, should it, that somebody uh, can't live at home when they're able to live at home? 100%. Uh, 100%. I think there's there's two points there, Michael. Number one is we have far too many. Basically, this waiting list of 6,000 that we have is basically divided into two. It's around 3,000 people waiting for care for the very first time. They're eligible for care. They can't have care because there's no carer around to support them. And the other half are people waiting for more hours. Both cohorts of people could be driven to a nursing home well before time or well or if, even if they don't need to because there's no care available and i think part of the reason uh here is the deal on offer to cares as i described is not what it should be so we can't attract more people into the service but also we have artificially 
stopped our existing carers working more hours because some of them have the medical card, carer's allowance, and those have hard cutoffs, which mean if they work too many hours and provide more care, they'll lose that benefit. So we need to change that system. We put that in our pre-budget. Mm. But one of the bigger things, Michael, that you're talking about here is if someone we know needs care, they can access the fair deal scheme to get a nursing home placement. I was talking to someone just yesterday whose family want their loved one to stay at home, but they can't because all the assets of this person are in their house. And so they, they're told they can access fair deal funding for a nursing home place, but they can't access the same level of support to have 24-7 care at the person's home. And I think that's a total betrayal of the home first promise of the government. It's a total betrayal of care in this country where we're saying mm. that really what you need to do is you can access institutional care and institution, but you can't stay in your own home. But what but, is the problem? I, I think you had said waiting lists uh, have increased by 25% uh, between 2022 and 2023. In the course mm. of a, a year, an increase of 25%. Is that because people are, are giving up the job, uh, that you can't uh, provide care for older people? Or is it that there's more older people? Has it to do with an ageing population? It's, it's, it's much more to do with the latter, Michael. We've actually seen over the past two years, the capacity of the sector has gone up by around 4 million care hours. Of that, 80% is our members at HCCI providing more care. So we've, got, we've attracted more carers in. We're providing more care than we ever have, but we can't keep pace with the demographic changes. And um, just as an example in terms of what I was talking about with the social welfare benefits, our members employ around 10,000 home care workers across the country. 80% of them are part-time, around 75% are part-time with HSE. So this isn't a public versus private thing I'm talking about here. Mm. But most, most most home care workers are part-time. And 70, 67% of them say, I'm on some sort of social welfare benefit. But if you let me work more hours and keep my benefit, then I would. Mm. So if, if, if those if even half of carers, so that's a lot of numbers I'm throwing at you, but basically if half our workforce said, we said to them, you can work three or four more hours per week and keep your social welfare benefit, we would cut the waiting list in half with a stroke of a pen. With the stroke of a pen. And, and when you say work more hours, uh, it's different than saying work more days, isn't it? Because correct, you could correct. be you could be working three hours a day, five days a week. That's fifteen hours, uh, which in anybody's uh, mind would be the equivalent of two days work. Uh, but it's seen as five days work, obviously. Exactly, exactly. This is you know I, I've talked to uh, TDs about this. Our social welfare system is a 100-year-old relic that has the, it, you, it's it's specifically designed, Michael, to promote full-time work. It has this assumption baked in that if you're not working full-time, you're not working as many hours as you should. It hasn't acknowledged changing work patterns. It hasn't acknowledged the fact that women now work in the workplace. That people share. Uh, childcare responsibilities between parents, all these sorts of things. And the fact, frankly, that we have more older people in this country, so people are providing more care to loved ones as they get older. So if we changed our social welfare system, we could make sure our carers could provide even more care across the country. So really, right now, I feel we have a Minister for Hospitals, not a Minister for Health, and Stephen Donnelly. Um, if, if we just looked at this strategically and said, how do we promote home first, we would do a couple things. We will provide that continuity of income for carers that I talked about. 
We would change our social welfare system so that people aren't punished if they work a couple more hours. And as you said, that's distinct from number of days. And the third thing we would do is we would make sure that there was a scheme available for people, let's say, to use the value of their home or if they didn't have assets that they could still access care in their home if that was clinically the best thing for them. Right now, none of those three strategic pillars are in place. And that's what we really need now is a strategic approach to care and not just band-aid solutions of more funding and little schemes Mm. here or there. Okay. And uh, if you are providing care, uh, it'll be an hour at a a time, a maximum of three hours per person over three visits in a a day. Uh, So if you were to work a, a full day, you'd have to travel from one Uh, person to another Uh, did you say that travel time is being paid now because that has always been so 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 so, so travel time is now part of the new scheme that we negotiated and worked out with the hse Mm. um we we still have we've tried several times uh, for months in fact to get the hse to sit down with us to talk about how will this actually be implemented because it's quite complicated but in principle yes travel time is paid Mm. is it paying petrol or no, well, this is the thing, right. is the government and the HSE said, we will pay for travel time, but we won't pay mileage. Ah, so we'll pay for right. the time, but mm. not the distance. And you're okay. like, come on. Mm. I mean, that, yeah. that, that, that doesn't make sense yeah. on the Sunday. Okay. Because um, when you go to do your second hour's work, uh, the pay from the first hour could be spent on petrol, depending on the distance. Right. So, so that, like the, these basic things that are in place for other sectors aren't in place for, for, for ours. Um, and that, that should also change. But I think one of the things you've, you've hit the nail on the head again, Michael, when you talk about, and I hate to be in violent agreement with you, but I am in this instance, um, again, is around the 30 or one hour calls. You know, I think we should we should look at some other countries which have a presumption that you can't do quality care if it's less than a two hour call. Okay. So I know in Canada, for instance, uh, in Ontario, obviously the state that houses Toronto, most home care providers will not take any work that isn't two hour minimum mm. because they say we just can't provide quality care to someone in okay. less than two hours. I know an awful I think we lot. Need to look- I'm sorry, Joseph. I know an awful lot of people will understand uh, why uh, and will identify with your, what you're saying. We've run out of time. I'm sorry. We have to leave it there. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us today. Joseph Musgrave so much, is uh, the CEO of the Home and Community Care Ireland Group. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on L. MFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now Michael at LMFM.ie.